0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, I get to talk about Bigfoot again. Yay, always a good thing. Our guest is Erica T. Worth, and relax, she has a lot more to talk about than Hairy Men in the Woods. Her new novel, White Horse, is an uber-gritty piece of indigenous literary horror. It's full of haunting spectres, violent people, and stinking demons that appear in your dreams. It's a book with a unique voice. I'd say it's pitched somewhere between Stephen Graham Jones and Stephen King, and though I can think of, well, few better places to be, Whitehorse is also entirely itself. Erica and I talk about dreamlike structures, the German phenomenon of Sonder, We take a tour of the real Overlook Hotel. She gives a great working definition for the difference between literary and genre fiction. And I start quoting Kerouac like some wide-eyed undergraduate. Now, I have to admit, I was suffering from a a lack of sleep when I recorded this episode. So if I'm a little less coherent than usual, which I know is already saying something, then I can only apologise. Thankfully, Erica carries me. Quick note... For those who don't yet know, you can get more bonus content from Talking Scared by signing up for Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Sorry to mention that right up front, but, well, I've got to keep the roof on somehow. But now, follow me into a dimly lit bar somewhere under a dark Colorado sky. Rock music is blaring, drinks are flowing, and even the ghosts are having a good time. Let's talk Scared. Well, hello, Erica, and a warm welcome to Talking Scared. How are you?
1: Wonderful. I'm um, so honoured to be on this podcast.
0: Am I right in thinking you're speaking to us from Denver?
1: Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, in a suburb called Highlands Ranch. that's a bit south. So if you're a bit north, um, I'm a bit south.
0: Yeah, I am a bit north. I think you're my first guest from Colorado. I'm trying to tick off all the the states, so it's always good to have a a new pin to put in the map. And and Colorado in particular. uh, Stephen Graham Jones of this parish describes your book as Denver to the core. And I'm not quite sure what he means by that because I've never been to Denver. And I'm not sure what Denverian or Colorado Gothic would be defined as, but perhaps that's something we can explore today. The novel in question, though, is called White Horse, and it came out last week from Flatiron Books. And it's a strange, gritty, barroom lament of a book. It's one of those that offers an interviewer dozens of ways in. And I think it's always best to start with an introduction. So can you tell us, in your own words, a little bit about White Horse?
1: Yeah. um, In in short, it's uh, Indigenous Literary Horror. Um, and in Long, it's uh, basically it's about a woman named Carrie and she's a urban Indian, a long line of urban Indians. Um, she loves heavy metal. She loves horror, both, uh, you know, fiction and film and specifically Dave Mustaine and Stephen King. And she despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. But when her super sweet, well-intentioned uh, white cousin, Debbie, finds an ancient bracelet of her mother's. When Debbie touches it, her mother's ghost starts haunting her. And then this really evil sort of Bigfoot uh, character starts invading her dreams. And she decides she has to find out what happened to her mother after all.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned Bigfoot. So glad. And a portion of my listeners right now are rolling their eyes. But buckle up, people. because I get to talk about Bigfoot in a bit. Um, We'll get to the monster. Let's begin with the origins of this novel, because... I've been doing my due diligence, and I believe that this began as a story collection rather than a novel. Is is that right? And what prompted the shift?
1: Essentially, um, when I did my doctorate in creative writing and literature, they iron out, especially at the time that I did it, any interest in what they consider to be genre. And so it was I was really interested in short stories. You know, I still love them, especially ones that would qualify as quote unquote literary. And it was a short story collection. that was all realism called White Horse Love. And over time, it became a garbage novel, and then a multiple point of view novel, which was also garbage, but maybe slightly less so. And it was at that time, I started realizing that I wanted to get back to my nerd roots. And I decided to make this into a horror novel, because, you know, the, the subject matter that I had you know, talked about before was dark, and it you know, was a natural fit. So it was non speculative.
0: Originally, it was just a, a mainstream lit novel. Oh, sorry, collection, rather.
1: Well, it was a novel eventually, but yeah. And, you know, I'd had a friend um, look it over. And when I told her it had turned into a sort of a paranormal novel, she was not surprised.
0: OK, right. I can't imagine this without. Well, actually, I say that I, ca- I can imagine because a lot of this is slice of life, sort of Americana. But the, the supernatural and the uncanny is so inextricably entwined now that I can't really imagine it. It's like a wall where the, the ivy has taken root. You know what I mean? You can, you can get there was a wall there once, but if you pulled the ivy out, it would pull half the wall down with it. So I can't, I can't imagine reverse engineering it back into a lit novel.
1: Yeah, someone was just saying, and I know my agent and I went back and forth about this on Twitter, which is a wasteland, um, but huh. that um, essentially, you know, literary novels are when the, when the ghost isn't real right? The, at the end of the novel, oh, it actually turned out it was just...
0: <laughs> I like that.
1: Genre, supposedly, is when the ghost is real. And I think that's a dumb distinction. Um, and I, I I, think that that's why I call it a literary horror novel, because it's, a, it's both.
0: Okay. The, the book is pretty dreamlike in structure. So you get these chapters end and carry our protagonists in one place, and then the next chapter starts in a completely new place. There's no natural, obvious sense of connection between the two, how she got there. It's almost like vignette. And it does feel quite, as I say, dreamlike. And I wondered if that was a stylistic choice because dreams are so prominent in this book or whether that's just a hangover from the original being written in fragments.
1: You know, um, my, in some ways, the structure is very, very traditional. It's absolutely the Hollywood arc. I value structure. I value story. And that's another thing that is just, not talked about in academia, you know, they'll say, oh gosh, well, that's, you know, that's so Hollywood. And I, and I thought, well, okay, but what is the blueprint? What is the blueprint that a lot of people use? And when I met my partner who was just starting really at the time, and now he's a well-known thriller writer, um, he was like, well, here are these more nuts and bolts books on structure. And so for me, the book um, has like all the sort of points that you might see you know, in an archetypal Hollywood film, The Catalyst, um, etc. And the short chapters are in relationship to that, because I think it it causes a more propulsive um, reading. But because I was a poet many years ago, because um, I do love that hypnotic state that someone can get in, um, when language becomes a sort of portal to something else, I did try to keep some of the bits and pieces from the earlier versions in the poetic flashbacks where the main character is thinking about um, her best friend who um, she lost, right? Um, so those are the places, besides just the the dream sequences where she wakes up and she her mother's haunting her, that I, I felt that you see what you're talking about most strongly.
0: Yeah, and it is a disorienting feel, which I think befits a book, which is is often about dreams and memory and Carrie not really understanding what is real or, or not real. There's a constant refrain that she says, Oh, this could just be a brain tumor All this supernatural stuff she's encountering. Um, But that disorientation, as I say, ties into the dream thing. And I have to ask a question. I was going to, I was kind of shying away from this a bit, because who needs to reopen this kind of vipers? I know you follow me on Twitter, and I, I do wonder how you responded a few weeks ago. Knowing this interview was happening and knowing what your book contains, I'd, I hadn't read it at the time. I wonder how you responded at how you felt when I went on my thing about hating dream sequences.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, all these writers who responded. Um, I was like, oh, you guys are so insecure. It's clearly about me. Um <laughs> Um, I a like I said, I've been a creative writing professor for over 15 years and my students, they're great, but they, they'll choose to be lazy. And I understand they've got a lot on their plates, but they just sort of think, oh, I'm very clever. And I'm going to end this with, um, you know, um, it was all a dream. So I understand the, the urge away from it. I think the problem with being right, like a sort of public critic is you either accept that you're the bad guy and you're like, yeah, I'm the bad guy, or you just, you know, shut up, except for the podcast and the articles. Right. (laughs) And if you'll see, that's why a lot of times I don't tweet anything personal anymore for a variety of Uh reasons. Um, But yeah, I, I did sort of, you know, you're the first uh, person I, I said to Flatiron, like, please reach out to Neil. He's, he's rad. He's provided me really an education on contemporary horror writers. And I've read just about everybody he's recommended and that his, uh, the folks he's hosted has recommended and then, you know, I'd listen to a podcast of yours where you'd have this incredibly friendly interview. And at the end, you were like, well, though our conversation was lovely, I did feel as if burning his book in a pit of vipers and throwing it into a lava pit would be suitable. So I was like, well, I've asked for this. Ah, <laughs>
0: uh, Jeff Van <laughs> Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm assuming that's the one you're responding. You're referring to. I, uh, uh, me and Jeff Vandermeers, Hummingbird Salamander did not get along. Um, no, I can I can put your mind at rest. I was not making my anti-dream sequence comment in relation to White Horse. I hadn't read White Horse at the time, and White Horse gets a pass for two reasons. One, it's about dreams, like the monster very much exists in a dream space. And and actually, you do a, a pretty good job of getting across that genuine sense of uncanny and illogic that, that occurs in dreams. Uh, there's a great dream sequence on a roller coaster where someone gets their neck chewed open um, in the middle of the, the big drop. And that felt like a dream. It felt like the kind of weird shit that goes down that you can't really explain. Um, I, I will take this moment to... Just elaborate a little bit on dream sequences whilst I've got the chance if you'll indulge me. I I don't hate them all. And I don't think that dream sequences ruin books. I basically just think that in most books, dream sequences are the weakest part. That's my take on it, basically, because it's very, very difficult to get across that sort of inchoate nature of dream imagery. Um, And the book, actually, that prompted... That comment was one of my favourite books of the year, uh, The Hollow Kind by Andy Davidson, which I adored that book, but that was the one that prompted it. So, so yeah, you you get a pass, Erica. This one uses dreams pretty well. Sweet. (laughs) Going back to this whole thing about changes from the original to the current form, I also understand that whereas it is a traditional native bracelet that kicks off Carrie's journey in the novel...
1: In the stories, it was a letter. Is that right? Oh, originally, yeah. And it was just a boring trope. And uh, I was watching Lovecraft Country, and I realized how fun those objects of mystery, those physical objects of mystery, that led mm. from one plot point to another war. And I was like, you know, this is just a dumb trope. I don't, I don't want it.
0: Yeah, because letters are far more mundane. You know, letters foretelling secrets in in gothic and horror a ten a penny um the bracelets much cooler i did wonder does that switch from letter to jewelry represent a more general prominence of native native american culture in your novel
1: you know i think a lot of the reason why i never wrote what what i'm writing now is because the way in which native american literature it was always literary and it was always utilized um, for here is this authentic moment in Native culture. And that just made me really uncomfortable. I'm one person, I'm urban, I'm a, you know, three, you know, descended from three different tribes. I grew up with even different tribes, Dine and Lakota. And, you know, even though urban Indian culture is its own thing, I don't feel like my art is here to just display culture. Um, mm. If they want that, they should read a book, right? So part of what I didn't like is the way in which magical realism, which you know originated as something in Latin America and described Latin American novelists like Marquez, was sort of utilized to be like, look, look at these charming people who believe these charming things. <laughs> and so I really hated that that stuff. And I I was gritty realism. That was it. Um, but. What happened eventually was my indigenous brother from another mother, right, Stephen Graham Jones, who had a extremely similar trajectory, even though there were we are wildly different writers. Um, you know, took that turn into horror, and it. I had this conversation with him when I was picking up a class somewhere, and I said, you know, Stephen, what's a what's a book that you would recommend? Um, that you think is sharp, that's definitely literary, but also horror, because I had seen him just take this turn. And he was like, you know, it's experimental film. And that kind of started my journey. I was like, you know, there's a way if I just do horror, and I'm not doing magical realism, I hope that the bracelet can just be magical. And it can signify some things about Carrie and her ethnic background, without being like this charming moment of like authenticity.
0: Yeah, I, I get that. I get that entirely. At the same time, so much of White Horse seemed to me to be focused on Carrie's kind of sense of belonging or unbelonging um she's identified and self identifies as I think you do as an urban indian now apologies i I'm just being dumb here, but that that's not a phrase I've ever really heard before, and i can I can you know kind of work out i think what that means culturally but I don't get the nuance so it seems important that we understand that starting point about Carrie a little and perhaps about yourself so can you explain perhaps for my British listeners who 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 don't know what urban Indian really means
1: colonization and genocide wouldn't occurred in um on this continent it was so different in for example Canada America or the United States and in Mexico. In Mexico, folks are, you know, obviously they encountered horrific genocide and colonization, but a lot of people physically survived, but their cultures got kind of mashed up. So you often can ask folks of indigenous background there, are you indigenous? And they're like, I guess so. And they may not know their tribe. In the United States, we, you know, a lot of people were. Long story short, eventually squished into or removed to reservations, and that, those are the only spaces in which they tracked people as Native American. They were like these people, put them down on the census as Indian. Now, otherwise, unless they are visibly black, which a lot of us are, I am of black descent as well, put them down as as white. Um, in Canada, they tracked urban Indians just as as much as they tracked folks on the on the reserves, and so um, they have their own distinct. And so does Mexico their own distinct versions of urban Indian. In my specific case, my family's from Northern Mexico, they're Apache. They came up at a certain point um, because the Mexican government was pushing indigenous people out. Um, the, the rest of my, my family, at least on the native side, Um, The Apache and the Chickasaw side, they're also of some small black descent. And even though in lived memory, I don't know who would have self-identified as black. It's still you don't want to be in the south during slavery times when even the Indian tribes there owned slaves. So they were free. They left. They both met in Texas. And the cultures that arose in Houston at the time, then subsequently Minneapolis, Chicago, <clears throat> they started to kind of coalesce around Native American church, which is a mix of Mexican, Indian, Lakota, Diné, and sometimes Christian, depending where you're from, religious traditions or spiritual traditions um, is a better word. And then powwow culture, which on the surface is for tourists, but really it's a way for all of us to come together and also for people from reserves or reservations to you know, socialize, sell our jewelry, hang out with friends, family, um, compete in dances. And so urban Indian culture sort of revolves around those things. Carrie is like a lot of the women that I grew up with. She's kind of tough. She's smart. She's very self-educated. And I wanted to honor that. But she's very comfortable identifying as indigenous. She has no problem. She knows what tribe she is, et cetera. You know, grew up with uh, Auntie Squeaker, right? Who's, who's very traditional. It's just that she's kind of a gritty personality and spirituality is kind of annoying for her. It's not that she hates being native. It's not that she thinks people who do spiritual things uh, that's, you know, are bad. It's just, that's her thing. And she's pragmatic. She doesn't, you know, she's an atheist. You know, if you were to ask her, she'd be like, I don't believe in the other world. So when this starts happening to her, um, it's, it's extremely disorienting.
0: Yeah. She uses phrases like, Oh, it's some old Apache spell. And at one point she says, you know, I've done a few ceremonies just to be a good friend. And there's a sense that she's kind of performing in participation and then as it goes on, she finds a much more personal, much more familial, I suppose, sense of what all this stuff means to her.
1: Yeah, I think the, the popular phrase um, is reconnecting, but she's not reconnecting because she knows she didn't grow up in Chickasaw territory. She didn't grow up in Apache territory. Um, she grew up in an urban environment. But, you know, there again, there's a way to pursue perhaps Native American church in a way that would be fruitful for her and were connected to her mother, which is the person that she despises, right. And ultimately realizes like, but I am from this person.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and mother is one kind of haunting influence. She appears in ghostly form and there's, there's one very creepy scene with, with Carrie's dad, who Carrie's dad has got quite severe brain damage. And there's, there's one very creepy scene and one, one reveal that I, I actually won't spoil it for the readers. Um, but yeah, there's an implication about that haunting that gave me chills. The other th- the other sort of manifestation of the supernatural, let, let's get to the horror now. Let's get to the the monstrous element. The loafer, this this creature that seems to be pursuing Carrie. Um, I've read enough on Google essentially to know that the lore and of the creature does exist. But can you talk a little bit about the Loafer. why did you pick that monster from all of the myths available
1: well because i'm of chickasaw descent and the Loafer is so fascinating to me because the bigfoot that i grew up with in some ways was from harry and the hendersons Mm -hmm. and he's this like friendly nice dude and there are some you know nations native nations that i think that hues a little bit closer but for the chickasaw he is a basically an evil dude who lives in a cave and smells and that character that was was always in the book which it just should have been a clear erica you're a horror writer you idiot moment um and so um but yeah he kidnaps women he skins your skin and eats it he is you know hunted and eliminated by you know at least attempted to be so by tribal members And he's a great analog for the sort of bigger theme of, oh God, I hate this phrase, but like toxic maleness um, Mm. that I'm also kind of threading throughout the novel. Yeah,
0: because there's some really striking reveals late on. So it goes to really dark revelations, this that I did not expect. And that monster becomes a great, I don't know if metaphor is the right word, but manifestation perhaps of, of those things. But do you know this this aspect of how it kind of invades carries dreams? Is that your invention or is that part of the law?
1: You know what? That's basically my invention for two reasons. Like, I don't want to generalize, but largely speaking, most native nations historically had some sense that maybe the other world could be touched via a dream. Um, And secondly, you know, it's just it's fun and it's cool and it's a way to. You know, before I had so much like, like in the earlier versions, moments in which like there was just so much talking in a room and I wanted to pull that into action in a way that was meaningful and fun and fearful, which was something I had to work on. And so I think dreams uh, that you wake up from and there's something in your room definitely was something I wanted to, to, you know, master or at least get to in the novel.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you, you will know yourself as a, as a long-term listener to this show, that I have my issues with sleep and with, with things that attack you in the night. And, yeah, when, and I've, I've, I've had real difficulty sleeping this week. Real, so I was, when I opened I was like, oh, no, what am I going to have to put myself through? But I managed to escape without too much terror um, on that part, thankfully. Before we move on from the loafer, I've got to ask one of my self-indulgent questions. I haven't mentioned Bigfoot on this show since Joe Lansdale told me his cousin was a Bigfoot hunter back in June. And and you brought it up. So here goes. Like, as you've mentioned, and as I've read, this creature, the loafer, is often treated as in a kind of indigenous version of Bigfoot. Now, when I say treated, I mean that kind of white people come along and, and kind of use these stories as evidence for the latter day Bigfoot and I wonder basically in a, in a fun way you know what are your thoughts on that what are your thoughts on Bigfoot living in the part part of the country that you do uh, but more serious I suppose what are your thoughts on the way that native legends are used to sort of backfill that mystery I ask cause it's a particular fascination of mine
1: well, I think but it's not an indigenous version of Bigfoot. It, Bigfoot is indigenous. I don't think he has any origin point outside of indigenous stories. I, I, I would. Although, if there were some some analogs, that'd be interesting. Um, and that's always interesting because you see, the other day I was at a conference and this this lady had a tie with her Bigfoots on it, and she was a Bigfoot writer. And then I look, and there's this very Fabio style gigantic cutout of a of, of a sexy Bigfoot man and this is what she and I thought that's an that's an interesting fantasy and I suppose it's appropriation but the other part of me when it comes to appropriation is glad that it's gotten into American and global consciousness so much that we don't even know its origin points um, and we can get back to them in specific ways but it means that things survived and they penetrated into the culture and I kind of love that in a way
0: See, that's a fascinating inversion of what I thought, because my take was always that the appropriation wasn't taking Bigfoot is that it was taking indigenous law to support the, you know, this is a strange phrase, but the white idea of Bigfoot. I never thought of it the other way around. I never thought of it as that's where the roots were. Does that, does that make sense? I thought of Bigfoot as very much a kind of contemporary American experience that we then went searching for this law to kind of contort into an apparatus to support it all.
1: I kind of love that Americans go running around hunting Bigfoot, like, and not to kill him, but because they want to believe in magic and the magic that exists existed before their ancestors got here. That's just such a weird American thing. And like I said, I think appropriation is what it is, right? And I'm honestly not so upset as long as Native writers are, you know, out there writing and thriving. Like that's what matters to me. Is there's more than one native person who's like the check Mark and the most authentic or whatever. That mm-hmm. um, There's a bunch of us doing it. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I love that, that, you know, like I said, people just sort of run around and make movies about him and he kind of lives in that way. And I want to believe that, like I said, with my book and others, we're leading everyone, including native people, native audiences back to these more specific references, even if there's a ton of imagination and poetic license.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I just love it all. I just, I don't know why. My imagination just takes flight. And the more historical the reference, the better. They're the ones that really fascinate me. Not, not you know, Joe Bloggs went walking through the Oregonian woods in 2008 and heard a whistle. I love the stuff from back in the day. But, so we've talked about bracelets, and we talked about Bigfoot, right? Another side of heritage, of course, is place. And this is more broadly speaking. So, let's go back to that Stephen Graham Jones quote
1: oh I've known him for 20 years and um he's it's it's he's such a a character because you know he kind of looks like there should be a wind machine on him but if you (laughs) meet him he's like I like comic books (laughs) you know he's like and I just love that about him and his wife is super cool and I just you know that he's great but yeah he blurbed um a book of mine earlier on buckskin cocaine is what it was called and it was a collection of short stories so even though of course i wanted him to blurb me and he's you know fabulously successful you know um he was the first person i reached out to because you know i've known him for so long
0: mm, yeah i mean quite aside from friendship just his star is so ascendant that getting him on the front of anyone's book i think is just a real kind of you know it, there's a lot of kudos in that um and there are obvious affinities between your work as well in in terms of the grittiness that you keep talking about that you can feel that very much in in both but but this quote Stephen said of your book it's metal to the end it's Denver to the core and it's native without trying so we've dealt with the latter of those three points let's go with the second let's start with Denver what what does it mean to be Denver to the core especially in horror terms
1: you know, I'm from this area. I grew up um, in between two small towns um, west of Denver um, in the mountains. Um, I was school in Idaho Springs where Carrie um, went to school. I spent most of my my childhood there. And my parents were from like very working class backgrounds. They had gotten four-year degrees, um, eked out what you could call middle class existence, except that my dad blew all of our money. So we lived in a nice house, you know, that wasn't updated um, and I went to school in a very, very working class area, which was super rugged and um, was a mix of Native folks, um, primarily working class white folks, Latinx, Latinx natives, and, you know, just a handful of Black folks that were like, get get me out of here as soon as possible. Um, and the commonality was absolutely the mullet. Um, but Denver was never far away. And Denver is where I live now. And what's going on in Denver and the outlying areas is that it's you know old Denver is dying. It is an incredibly expensive place to live, a place where everyone wants to live. And so all of the parts of my childhood are either gone or going away. The white horse, which is an Indian bar in Denver, um, was sold as I was selling my novel, and they will certainly plow it plow over it and put condos up. There is no way that Indian bar has been there. I think it's 50 years, it might be 60. Um, it changed hands at one point, I think in the 60s or 70s. And I met the the last owner and I, we would hang out, my boyfriend and I, the White Horse, and drink a few Budweiser's. It was empty. But all the places, Lakeside, all of these um, places are dying in Denver. And so in some ways, the the book is an homage to old Denver, which if you're from this area or you're from a similar area, you understand like these things that were so integral to your identity that are so locked into your memories are just gone or going. Well, I'm glad to have read it
0: then because there is a sadness in that. And there are books I've read about Manchester that that do that, you know, that, that sense of trying to capture water pouring through your hands almost. Um, Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize the bar was a, a real place. I, I mean, it, it plays such a, I don't know, a central role in the book. It feels like a haven and a home for Carrie, far more so than anywhere else. Um, but very little of the actual plot happens there. So I, I do wonder, why did you name the novel For the Bar?
1: because it's probably the most recognizable indian landmark in denver for urban indians and indians on the res who lived there or visited you know lived in, lived in indian and then went back um lived in denver and went back on um, or you know from here or stay here or left it is the most visible clearly indian landmark in denver
0: okay kind of changes my my perspective knowing it's a real place there's a real sadness now because of course in in the book there's a, the question of whether Carrie will buy the bar and it will live on and the fact that 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 the opposite has happened in reality there's a real sadness to that
1: now my new novel is kind of like new den New Denver and I try to you know keep the natives that are here and like I went to an indigenous fashion show the other day which is rad and you know it's definitely Indian Denver is still here but it's not the same and because it's it's a place where a lot of natives you know they just a lot of people cannot afford to be and the white horse is a heli- just the most archetypally indian place i think i've ever been and like i went to when i went to the indigenous fashion show and my friend raven was telling everyone about my book cuz she's wonderful that way everyone was like oh my god the white horse i went there my dad went there i rescued a baby from there i ran with the baby <laughs> i you know my my you know you know met my wife there like it really is that bar. And it is sad because, you know, it's probably, again, like there are a handful of bars like that in the United States and probably Canada. And yeah, I'm sure a lot of them are dying. So.
0: I've just Googled an image of it and yeah, it it looks just like I imagined. (laughs) Right. So here's got to be, this will be a bit of waffle here because I don't really have a a question. It's just something I feel that your book evoked in me. So that sense of sadness and that sense of, you know, things dying and all of that stuff we just talked about, it ties into this thing. There's something about horror fi- well, all fiction, but I tend to read horror, you know, so fiction from the central states, from the middle of America, whether it's the Midwest or the high desert or whatever, you know, I don't actually know what, what you call the region around Denver. I don't know what the kind of broader term is for that, Um, but the 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 centre of America. There's something about it that it, it I, there's an emotion it evokes in me that I just can't properly articulate. And the best I can do right is there's one quote from your book that I wrote down to read out to you to kind of unpick some of this. So there's there's a passage in which Carrie is describing how her and her friend Jamie, when they were kids, quote hitched on a Saturday night. Ready for adventures of a kind that couldn't be had in a small town at the bottom of a mountain, the trees swing above our trailers, our dingy houses, our wild, furious hearts now, there's something about that i don't I don't know this kind of anonymity perhaps that comes with non coastal American horror, something about this kind of big sky looking down on these myriad small petty epic dramas this idea that anything could be happening out in these million small towns does that make sense or am i just waffling here
1: no i think i do you're probably picking up on something i didn't realize myself was in the novel which is i have there's a word for it i want to say it's german because all the fancy existential words are in german or is it sonder is that it? where you're like overwhelmed by humanity? You're overwhelmed by like everyone, the humanity all around you. I would say I have that a lot.
0: Yeah, Sondra is, it's a new word they made. To, it's the, the realization that everyone else has their own story and their own life and their own internal and, and external life. And it's it's often described as like, if you stand on a high building and look down at a city, every pinpick of light you see is somebody else whose life matters just as much as yours.
1: Yeah, I think most writers probably suffer from a version of that. And I remember on a funny note, the first time that hit me, um, I told my parents that I felt like Kermit the Frog and they were like, you're such a weird kid. I don't know (laughs) how you, okay. But what I meant was, you know, I'm this main character in my own life, right? Like Kermit. And he, but really, Piggy is also the main character in her her own life Um, and all of the Muppets whom I adored. Um, are all the main characters, Gonzo, especially because I like weirdos, um, are, you know, the main characters in their own lives. And I was probably six or seven, but boy, is that a distinct memory. So it's funny that you've picked up on that.
0: Well, it's just something that I've always loved. And I always think of it in terms of, you know, Iowa cornfields or even in certain King books, which we'll get to shortly, this sense of the middle of America. Yeah. It's just a place where well, you put it best, that's Sondra. I hadn't thought of that comparison. But yeah, everyone's living their own life. And there's this huge sky above them that unifies them. And it makes me, you know, the Kerouac quote, the, the, the final, um, I mean, this is a cliched thing, but the, the final page of On the Road, where, you know, he says something like, so, so in America, when the sun goes down, and blah, 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 and all that raw land that rolls in one huge bulge over to the West Coast. And and all that road, and all the people dreaming, and the immensity of it. And in Iowa, I know that children must be crying. Something like that. I don't know. It's like it's this sense that if you stand on the coast, either coast, and just look away, turn you back to the sea and look, just the the the, the sense of all the life between you and the other ocean. It, it's something that has always fascinated me. And and that quote I read of your book, I don't even know why, but it spoke to me of that.
1: Yeah, Denver is a funny place. It's like where the mid-we- Midwest meets the mountains, and so for a long time, it probably did sort of live in that in-between space. And mm. now it's become a sort of like little cultural thing. But yeah, Kerouac, you know, it's funny because I love the Beats, even though Kerouac certainly was a douchebag at <laughs> many turns. But he, when he, when he hits a line right, he hits it right. And you can see, you know, why people love him and why I love him. I especially love Burroughs and uh, Allen Ginsberg. You know,
0: yeah, I do know. In in that quote I read, at one point he just randomly says, "And don't you know that God is Poober?" And that's the bit where you know the mescaline's really hit. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, no, sorry. That this last five minutes has been perhaps me at my my least articulate. It's something I, I, I one day I will find how to put what I mean about central. American landmass horror into words, but it's something I love. And and that Sonder thing may have been the key to it. So thank you. Moving on to more, more kind of pinnable things. Um, In that quote from, from SGJ, he said it's Denver to its core. He also said it's metal as hell. And Carrie is an avid metal fan, Megadeth in particular. I'd never heard the name Dave Mustaine before. This, This is not my taste, but does that come from your own tastes?
1: You know, when I was a kid, um, I lo- I was an indie kid and then a hip hop kid and metal was all around me. A lot of working class natives, whether on the res or urban, working class white folks, Latinx folks, who especially who live in those small towns or more grittier parts of the city, they love metal and it was everywhere. And I remember just being so annoyed with it. And then um, <laughs> it was like, you know, that like, yeah, cool, you know, like that stuff. Um, and I can see if you're in Northern um, you know, Britain, that, that's sort of the origin. That's Black Sabbath. And when I started to do some research about Black Sabbath and about metal, I could see that this place where metal first arose, right, is I can see then why the people where I grew up loved it so much. And what happened to me over time was that it was the soundtrack to my childhood. And even though I'm kind of a Pearl Jam guy um, or an MC Solar guy, I have to say when I listen to Metallica and Megadeth or A Feather and Bone even, which is a local um, semi-indigenous band, um, I can see why people like it. It's rugged. It's mean. It fills something inside you in that way. It mirrors your pain. Um, and it also, like, the thing I love about hip-hop and indie rock or alternate rock, alternative rock, is that, like, you, it's DYI. It's garage bands. And granted, some of them are polished and wonderful and they're brilliant musicians, but... With metal, unless you're talking about those goofy hair bands, right? um, you're talking about people who have to be virtuosos. Mustaine writes articles for music magazines. Uh, that, that's, that's how good he is. And I went to go see him the other night. And I was like, struck by how weird he is, how weird his lyrics are, how political, even though they're not my politics, in many ways, I think he's a libertarian. And someone got mad at me on Twitter twice for talking about him. Um, but like, these guys, that's what a working class person has to have to get out is they have to be a virtuoso to get out. So now I see the appeal. Now I get it, and and I I do I do enjoy listening to to heavy metal now.
0: Yeah, you're quite lucky because if, if that was the music of your childhood, I grew <laughs> up in the era of new metal, so I was surrounded by the Fred Durst of this universe, which was a far less fun place to be.
1: Oh, I was there too. I was. I just ignored it. <laughs> That's when I was <laughs> like, "Thank you, indie rock." But like, yeah, the kids kids back home they like Megadeth and Metallica. They stuck with yeah. like those guys.
0: Okay, because there is something about the role of metal in this book, it, it comes up less than you think in horror, because I think a lot of people who don't like horror, who people who dismiss horror or even worse think horror is a, a marker of something being wrong with you. You know, I think they think that we all love metal and that we all love cradle of filth and it's all the same thing, you know, but it's, it's actually quite rare that metal kind of plays a part in the horror that I've read. Um, But in this one, it really makes sense because it's, All the stuff you just said about breaking out, about breaking free, about the grit of it. There's the celebration of the outsider tone, I suppose. It feels like a a fitting soundtrack for the book.
1: Yeah, I think. And also, you know, Carrie just sort of has a boner for Dave Mustaine, you know, on some level. He, you know, he's got long red hair. He's cool. He's tall. He can play guitar. He's a rock star and he's super unabashed. And so she, you know... Um, she doesn't want to marry him. She doesn't want to marry anyone. To be clear, but you know, she's she's definitely kind of like, if I were that guy, that would be interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Carrie's a, quite a prickly character, and she's had a very very wild youth for you know for quite good reason, really. When you read about her life, this thing with Carrie not wanting to marry anybody, it'd be very easy to see that as kind of like an empowerment narrative, you know, like you go girl type thing, but. I'm not sure that's what you're getting at because she. I'm not sure whether her isolation is a strength or a weakness is, is a better way to put it.
1: Yeah, it's both. I think a lot of I think what's going on for her is that all of her models are garbage, right? Her parents' marriage was, as far as she knew growing up, like her mom was destructive and left. Um, she sees a lot of men as they need a mom. She can't provide that. She doesn't want children. Um, they want that. Um, And she's kind of a rugged personality. She is just deeply, deeply independent. And I think, you know, the key is she has to find a way to do friendship and be a good friend, right, to her cousin who she's made into her mother um, better at the end. I don't see Carrie in a long-term relationship, but I think I see her with a better sense of why um, she's not. And part of it, honestly, is as a female writer... I've never written around romance. I have nothing against it. Um, I can see why it appeals to people, but it's not my thing. However, be whenever I would have a romance in my um my books, I would be people would hyper focus on it. Just hyper focus. Mm. And so I decided to excise it for the most part for that reason.
0: Yeah, that that's interesting. Because I, I spoke to Rachel Harrison recently for her book Such Sharp Teeth. And that book contains a romance and it was a weird one because all the way through i was expecting the earnestness and the innocence of this romance to be undercut totally by by rachel's kind of trademark sort of slight sarcasm if you're listening rachel this is supposed to be a compliment and with you it it was kind of the opposite i almost felt like the snark and the the defensiveness of that carrier has was was kind of quite damaging in part, you know. And you do leave the implication at the end that she might find happiness with somebody else, even if it's not a traditional lifelong marriage.
1: I did listen to that with Rachel and I was thinking about my book. And I was thinking about what Rachel said because she was really trying to make it clear that it's not like, I'm so happy, I'm normal mm. now. It wasn't she was trying to say that. She was trying to say is an authentic way for a woman to attempt to have egalitarian relationship and i think in this world the answer is usually no (laughs) um i think that yeah carrie the with carrie is look she's deeply working class um a lot of natives have that kind of sense of humor you know they'll tease until people are like you know in tears like my uncles oh god and um but also she's gen x you know the book is set in 2016 she's 35 at the time so it's kind of like this trifecta of defensiveness and cultural things that she uses to say things that are over the line. In some ways, though, I did want her to be a female character who who could do that because mm-hmm. men get to do that in books. They get to be cool. They do, They get to do the wrong thing. Um, and I wanted her to sort of punch a hole in Debbie's narrative very clearly because Debbie's way is not going to make Carrie happy. And that is what Debbie has to learn.
0: Yeah, that's something my wife talk about all the time when we watch TV. Um About how, you know, men get to be these broken, barely functional shells of human beings. But if they're effective at what they're doing, all is forgiven. Whereas women do do not get that indulgence at all. And I don't know if you've ever seen, this is a, it would be weird if you'd seen it, but there's a a BBC show called Happy Valley, um, which is filmed in the area in which I live. Uh, And it's a very, very kind of working class kitchen sink kind of, cop procedural set in my... Li- it's quite spooky as well. It's It's, it's got a very macabre humour to it. If you can get it, Happy Valley. I'd recommend watching it, listeners. Um, but it contains this female policewoman who is not glorified. She's quite damaged. Um, but she stands out by the fact that all of that, that baggage that f- broken or damaged female characters usually have isn't there. She's given all of the leeway that a man would have in that same character. And um, um, there's something about Carrie that I, I can see the same thing there as well.
1: I will check out Happy Valley. I do like gritty shows. I have to admit, I'm a Doctor Who kid. I watched it with my dad and then I watched mm-hmm. it at the new incarnation. But I love that stuff. And as far as, yeah, Carrie goes, you know, I think one of the things that I don't want to be ugh, as a native writer on um, is sincere. I'm really just not compelled by these sorts of like good examples of, of the race. I hate putting it that way, but it's shorthand, Um, you know, where it's really just the outside world that's problematic or the only thing that's problematic about the main characters, they just need to find their culture. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Carrie is happy to be kind of an asshole, but she wants to be an asshole who's an asshole to the right people (laughs) who deserve it.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're getting a kind of a second wave of disaffected characters and it feels like all the writers who grew up in the in the late nineties, you know, with the these very disaffected books, you know, Brest and Ellis, Chuck Pawnee up, Donatal, all of that kind of stuff. Um it it feels like that tone is is coming home again now, both in the characters who are the right age who have grown up and become adults since then and 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 writers who have have done the same thing. I, I am quite enjoying it. Clay McLeod Chapman's goate is a is a similar thing. It has that that, that grungy nineties feel for a, a post-millennial
1: audience. I can't wait to read his book. I'm super excited.
0: Oh, it's a really good book. To finish, the one person who Carrie does have a fondness for, hey, this is for a segue, is Stephen King. Now, I mentioned King most weeks, but we haven't had a right old love in for a while. And I, I can't look at whether it's just a character trait or whether you are a massive fan of King as well. But he has a big influence on White Horse.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. I I was a Stephen King kid. I read everything that he ever wrote that at the time he couldn't write them fast enough, which is kind of hilarious to say, because he wrote them pretty fast. Um, I, I still read him all the time. My editor tried to get his my book to him. Um, and, you know, it's he's obviously like bombarded all the time. And it was really funny because one of my friends does know him. And um, he was like, look, it's it's like getting something to the Pope. It's like approaching mm. the Pope, you know. I just love the idea of Stephen King as the Pope. But yeah, he, what I think I, you know, first of all, he was omnipresent. Secondly, he wrote horror, which is in the end, like I was a, a dork in general. I love fantasy. I love sci-fi. Um, someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird when I was a kid. And I was like, where are the dragons? <laughs> um, but I just loved Stephen King in particular to the point where when I went to my undergraduate I wanted to do my senior thesis on him and I was just laughed out of the room. I was so angry about it. Um and I think Carrie just recognizes that you know kind of gritty small town life but at the same time it offers this bit of magic even if it's black magic.
0: Yeah and and I imagine that King looms large in your local area as well, quite quite literally looms large because of the Overlook or, or the Stanley Hotel that inspired the Overlook. I mean, how close is it? Is it to Denver, the Stanley?
1: Very close. I actually went there with my niece for um, research and it's not even a 40-minute drive. And my family had gone there before. And my sister was so embarrassed because I asked a worker if this was the blood room.
0: <laughs> bet they love that stuff. But I mean... There's a whole section of the novel that takes place at the Stanley. Um, So just to clarify, for those who don't know, the Stanley is a hotel in in Colorado that inspired The Shining's Overlook Hotel. It's not where they filmed it, which is a common misconception. But King stayed there for a night and was inspired to write the story. And as the story goes, he wrote it longhand at a desk because he couldn't sleep. Um, But yeah, you set an entire section um, in the in the Stanley Hotel, where Carrie goes on the tour of the hotel and hears all, all its ghost stories. And I, I'd, as much as I loved that section, because I'm a king, of course I loved it, I did wonder why, because it, it didn't feel essential to the plot that mm-hmm. Carrie went there.
1: Yeah, I think two things. Hilariously, what was filmed there was Dumb and Dumber. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, you know, I think um, I'd worked with, a, I was going to work with another editor and she was trying to help me tie these sections that were so Denver or outlying areas to the plot. Why I, I tied that one to the plot, and yeah, I guess it could have been kicked out was because what I think Carrie learns is that why did she have to go on this journey? Why, why, why would she have to go to the Stanley Hotel to find an object that helps her to find her mother? And it's because it's part of her mythology. This is who she ha- she is. And so I think why she goes to the Stanley is, you know, this is this, everything that she's going to find and discover along the way, it has to be authentic to who who she is as a person.
0: And also okay. the Stanley is cool. <laughs> the, the other thing about The Shining, of course, is that the film adaptation features commentary on on the Native American genocide. There's a whole section of the documentary, Room 237, that explores that theory um that's a whole trip have you seen that film
1: you know what's odd in all of my research you're the second person who's asked and i haven't and now i'm looking forward to it
0: yeah it is it's batshit for listeners who don't know it's it's basically like five video essays on the hidden meaning of the shining um the film not the book including at one point the the argument that it, the shining contains proof that stanley kubrick helped fake the moon landings but yeah, there's a, and to be fair, it tracks the internal logic tracks. It's bullshit, but it's convincing bullshit. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a whole video essay about how the the fact that the the film, not again, not the book, is all about the Native American genocide. You know,
1: um, going back to your earlier point, I love that King hates Kubrick's version, and you know, <laughs> it's it's too arty. And, uh, you know, it's not what I intended. But honestly, this is just my personal question. This is my personal pet theory. I always wonder if what Kubrick did was simplify the female character so that we could feel scared. So King said she has no agency, which is probably true, although she does at the end, right? But part of it is King was an addict at the time. And I think seeing Kubrick's version of him at that time was awful to see. I think that's why he hates it. Um, that's just my opinion. Um, but as far as that goes, King is King has so many natives and they're often kind of bad guys. And I know people don't like mm-hmm. that in the native writing world. But look, you know, sometimes the bad guys are better than the good guys um, because natives are often kind of these spiritual advisors and they're very silly in other people's fiction. So I'll kind of take the bad guy. Um, and I think also King, you know, he grew up in Maine. He might say, look, I, if I had these to write again, maybe I'd do it differently. But I think that most American writers want, at one point or another have something to do with natives in their book. My whole game since graduate school has been identify the at least one moment where there's something native in an American's book, because this is our land. And our stories, as we talked about with Bigfoot earlier, um, even our languages with certain words like canoe or chipmunk. They, they have made their way into the larger culture. And I think that people, perhaps creepily sometimes, are kind of fascinated by the fact that this is a continent that had gigantic cities, civilizations, and entirely different series of cultures um, really not that long ago, and we are still here. And so I think that's why you see it in King's work. And Carrie, of course, being self-educated, not, you know... Um, and, and a Native person who likes being Native but just doesn't want to get into it um, cannot help herself in thinking about these things, you know, whether she she keeps going about it, you know, probably not, especially publicly, but she cannot help it but notice irony.
0: It feels like with this interview, like I've, I've been asking you questions that almost feel a bit like I'm baiting you to to kind of be annoyed, and that, that's really not what I've been doing. But every time I've asked a question, you've just given me a really, really considered Kind of calm, kind of non bothered answer. It's been it's been a delight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not at all. And also, I'm Apache, and so we're we're just inherently rageful. Although I feel like my rage is is turned down pretty low. So,
0: okay, that's good. That, I'm glad it wasn't unloaded on yes, me. Now, that there's
1: Apaches are being mad at me if they're hearing this. You know, I take it back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we'll close in a second, but I will just say I love your theory about kings take on The Shining. I mean, I'm not going to go on again much. I hate the film. I'm not going to open that kind of worms again. One day I will do a deep dive Patreon explaining quite why I hate the film so much, but that will not be this day. But that's a great theory that he saw himself in Kubrick's Jack Torrance. I like that. The best theory I've heard um, was given to me by Mark Kermode on this show. That, uh, Mark Kermode is a very famous British film critic, particularly kind of in cult and horror cinema uh, and i interviewed him a while back now about his favorite book to film adaptations and we both picked um the haunting robert wise version of Shirley jackson's haunting of hill house and then we moved on to the shining and that we both don't like it and kumode said to me and this has stuck with me that kubrick is not adapting the shining kubrick is adapting his version of the haunting of hill house and i think that yeah i can see is so true
1: Yeah, I can see that. I think um, I've actually read that it was Shirley Jackson was also a huge influence for King at the time. So that makes sense. So that it would filter Kubrick. Well, while we're talking
0: about books, um, standard outgoing questions, can you recommend one for the listeners and tell us why?
1: Yeah, you know I I love all the cool new horror writers like Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Grady Hendrix could basically write a book every three months, and I would just read Grady Hendrix until I was dead or he was. So it's a good thing he's not doing that. Um, and I love Ring Shout by P. DeJelli Clark. But the book that I just think is a great match for horror readers, like willing, you know, to stretch their legs. Uh, because it's dark fantasy is Rebecca Roanhorse's Black Sun. It is a you know, like I said, a dark fantasy. It sort of takes place in a magical version, an imaginative version of Maya territories and other territories, um, probably thousand years ago, in which time you know these these civilizations were thriving, and on a simplistic level, just walking through these streets and going into a Mayan restaurant is so. Nostalgic is the wrong word, but so nostalgic for me. And I just want one evening doing that. But on a larger, more plot-based level, it's, you know, cleanly written. It's a multiple point of view. that's done masterfully. Um, I think she's, it's also just plot bombastic without being, um, you know, silly. And I think she's changed Native literature more than anyone else. I think the first, pe- first person that people listen to in terms of urban Indian life was Tommy Orange um that so we're you know going back to our earlier thing but it's Rebecca Roanhorse in my opinion that really is going to has has demarcated the future of indigenous literature
0: well she was the first name that really broke through for me even before Stephen Graham Jones I was aware of her I haven't read her stuff um but I remember Black Sun coming out it came, was it a year or two ago it came out yes I try and keep abreast of this stuff I think there's either a sequel just out or forthcoming isn't there
1: yeah, there's a sequel. It was out a few months ago. I did a conversation with her at a local bookstore. Yep.
0: OK, well, I definitely need to read that at some point because I I've, I've been looking to dive into some kind of immersive fantasy when I get chance. So I, might, I might try and give that a go. He says offering these promises every week. Um, but yeah, thanks for the, the recommendation. Um, and my last question. And you know what's coming because you listen. But Erica, what truly scares you?
1: Yeah, this is such a fun question. And I remember feeling like every time someone gave an answer being like, wow, that's that's interesting. Wow, what would I say? Um so you know, little things like needles, I I don't like them. Um enclosed spaces. I had an MRI like years ago and it did it to me. I didn't have it before, so thanks, MRI. Uh fascism, more abstractly. Um, yes, I'm I'm worried about the world my niece is about to grow up in. Um, but honestly, um, you know, what's interesting is I think in some ways you're asking like, why do we write, why we write. And so really dead to rights, I should be a slasher writer because I grew up with uh, an alcoholic father who was quite violent. Um, but I think for me, I don't know why, but it's that sort of portal to another world that compels me when it comes to paranormal, paranormal horror that I just love, even if it's like to a, a dark world um so i don't know yeah there's your overly complicated answer
0: (laughs) so it should be slashes, but really it's ghosts is that what you're telling me
1: yeah yeah it is the only thing that helps me sleep when i cannot sleep it is the only thing that distracts me enough from my head um is a really scary paranormal film or or book and so my boyfriend thinks this is insane but that's the way i work
0: well you may not believe this but as you said that the storm outside rose to an absolute zenith and I'm in my, my house on my own and the door to my recording room just creaked open in a very kind of movie way so yeah there's that.
1: What a perfect ending I love it. That's
0: Yeah, yeah. indeed yeah <laughs> well to sum up White Horse is metal as hell, Denver to the core, and native without trying. It is all of those things. Um, I think people will really dig it. So, Erica T. Worth, thank you for talking Scared.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a a genuine pleasure.
0: I think Erica must have me mixed up with some other podcaster, some meaner podcaster. (laughs) I don't think I've ever said anything openly nasty about anyone's book in one of these afterwards. For a long time, I was just far too scared of offending people. And even now, it's a pretty shitty thing to do, to invite someone on your show, reap their generosity, and then rip them a new one. Now, we celebrate books here, though on a very few select occasions, I suppose I have struggled. I'm actually going to use this as a bit of a segue for a moment I'm introducing a new strand to the Patreon, where I give monthly wrap-ups of the books featured with a little more in-depth chat about my opinions. That doesn't mean I'm going to say one thing here and then another for the patrons. It's just a chance to take a little more time and be a bit more nuanced. And if you do want to hear those reviews, you can sign up for Patreon. This seems a good time to mention it. A few quid a month gets you a good few hours extra content. You can sign up at patreon.com slash or just use the link in the show notes. Good, that's out of the way nice and early, on to less commercial things. Erica has written a hell of a story here. It's raw and tenacious and bleakly funny. The literary side of her writing shines through in those fragmentary chapters, and it has this general tone of disorientation and unease rather than outright, set-piece terrors. It's not a fright-fest of the typical kind, more a unique character study with horror overtones. But they are quite horrible, and the monster is creepy. Oh, and the entire chapter in the Stanley Hotel is a joy. One day I shall go there and take that tour, but until then, White Horse gives the next best thing. It basically takes you on a tour of the Overlook. It's 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 great. It's just like a Stephen King geek out. Loved it. The location, though, is my favourite aspect of this book. And by location, I don't mean the Stanley. I mean Denver and the middle of America. Erica and I, we, we, we talked about that idea of the anonymity of the American landmass. Stories that are once both small and epic. Sonder, that German word, does come closest to getting across the weird feeling I get. When I think about those people living their lives and their joys and their tragedies and all that stuff. But I'm still not fully articulating how it makes me feel. Do you, do you get what I mean? It's both chilling and heartwarming to think of all the lives that I'll never know about. All the secrets and the horror and the beautiful moments happening in small towns right across the world. But particularly America. I don't know why. But when I get onto this train of thought, I always end up thinking about the serial killer, Ed Gein, and that is a weird left turn, I know. You know Ed Gein, right? I mean, you really should. If not, then to Wikipedia with you immediately. But yeah, the thought of him capering in the moonlight outside his small Wisconsin farm, wearing someone else's skin. That's the real American Gothic nightmare right there. That's the secret and the mystery of it. The thought that someone else could be up to something equally depraved right now, and we wouldn't even know. I don't know what it is about America that conjures that feeling more than anywhere else. Is it just cultural ubiquity, or is there something special about those middle states where anything could be happening? To be clear, to be absolutely clear, this is not me implying that America is full of people who make lampshades out of their relatives though I realised that is how I may have made that sound. I'm just enthralled by the big sky and those furious hearts that Erica wrote about. Right, yeah, that is a bit of a tangent this week. I'll probably quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> the Twitter meltdown is still ongoing, and, well, it's getting funnier by the day. Um, I'm sticking around, and I'm increasingly expecting old Elon to just fuck off sometime soon. But I do realise there is a slow exodus occurring. I'll be there. You can find me on there as well as Instagram at TalkScaredPod. So come say hello or whatever. Or if you are leaving, drop me a DM with where you're going. We've got to keep this community alive. You can also email me directly at talkingscaredpod@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And I love to hear from anyone and everyone who has the time to say hi. After all my ramblings about America this week, I'm actually staying closer to home next time, when I'll be joined by debut novelist Fiona Barnett and her uber-weird slice of woodland sci-fi stroke folk horror, The Dark Between the Trees. That's out already, so if you want to prepare, you can read it beforehand. But until then, turn the music up, buy someone a drink, and vote blue like everyone's life depends on it because it does. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.